All right, take your left hands and hold them out like this in front of you, please. And we're going to sing together. Remember, we're going to sing this song. We're going to clap together, rhythm of six, okay? So you're going to clap with a person's hand on your right, their left hand, your right leg, your left leg, up and down twice. Their hand, your leg, your leg, up, down, twice. Their hand, your right leg, your left leg, up, down, twice. There we go. That's good. Now we're going to sing in just a minute. Bind us together, Lord, bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. Bind us together, Lord, bind us together, Lord, bind us together with love. There is only one God. There is only one king. There is body that is why we sing. Bind us together, Lord, bind us together with cords that cannot be broken. Bind us together, Lord, bind us together, Lord, bind us together with love. All right, very good, very good. Now take your Bibles, if you would, please, and turn with me to the book of 1 John. 1 John is where I want to direct your attention this morning. In just a couple minutes, we're going to read the first paragraph in this uh, book. You'll find First John right towards the end of your Bible, so the easiest way to find it may be to go to the book of Revelation and turn left just one or two pages. If you come to Hebrews, you're too far, you need to go right. If you're in Revelation or the book of Concordance, turn left and we'll find First John chapter 1. When I was in college, I attended a master class presented by members of the Canadian Brass. Now, the Canadian Brass is one of the world's most well-known brass quintets. They've been together since 1970. They've made 130 recordings. And uh, while they were on campus to give a concert, the music department gathered together all the instrumentalists and had us come and uh, listen as members of the, the Canadian Brass spoke about the skills and practices necessary to reach this level of excellence. These are were men at the pinnacle of their career, and they were talking about how they got there, their insights with us as instrumentalists. And one of the musicians said that the secret, if there is a secret, to performing at that level is that you have to master the fundamentals. Uh, there are basics that every teacher teaches uh, his or her students. You, you start these, as soon as you start to learn an instrument, when you pick one up in fourth or fifth grade, you learn how to hold the instrument and breathe properly and move your lips and use your lips and your tongue and your teeth to, to make the perfect sound come out of this instrument. There are fundamentals that you start learning at, at age 10 or 11. And he said, his argument was that if you master those, if you master those fundamentals, you will achieve excellence. I wonder if that uh, translates to fields beyond just musicianship. Um, is that how you get really good at golf? By mastering the fundamentals? Or uh, carpentry? Or does it apply to plowing a field? If you want to do it really well, you just have to master the fundamentals. Or teaching? Or parenting? How about parenting? 
Is it a question of mastering the fundamentals or programming? You learn the fundamentals and you master them. I I imagine it translates quite well to a number of fields. Uh, If you ask the Apostle John, who wrote these five chapters that stretch out before us, if you asked him, John, are there any secrets to following Jesus faithfully? He might say this. He might say, there are no secrets, just master the fundamentals. I say that based on what he wrote uh, in this book. This is not a book, 1 John, isn't, that strays very much from the center of the road. Uh, he, just think about how 1 John compares to like 1 Corinthians. 1 John doesn't say anything about head coverings or propriety in worship or singleness in marriage or spiritual gifts or food sacrifice to idols. All those issues that Paul writes about in 1 Corinthians, John doesn't touch on any of those things at all. Instead, what we have here over and over again is the fundamentals. Jesus Christ is God's incarnate Son. And believing that is itself a call to obey His commands, the chief of which command is to love one another. And John circles back to those three things over and over and over again. Uh, Now, John doesn't do that because he's incapable of writing anything else. Uh, he's trying to help these confused believers. This book is written for a group of Christians who are facing an onslaught of false teaching, and John's response to them is very simple, master the fundamentals. Now, as we take up this opening paragraph that's in 1 John chapter 1, what I appreciate about these four verses that is that, um, well, frankly, the phrasing of it is difficult. It's, it's, a, it's kind of a convoluted sentence. I'll talk about that in a minute. But the the focus of this paragraph is this basic message that the apostles first announced about uh, after the resurrection of Jesus and that his followers have been spreading since those earliest days. This is what they said, this is what we believe, and we've believed this for a long time. What he writes is, is meant here to keep us from getting distracted. It's very easy as followers of Jesus to be distracted. You might get distracted by what, what they say about us as followers of Christ on the news. Does, does, uh, what is said about evangelicals, Caucasian evangelicals on the news, does it accurately and adequately reflect who we are and what we believe? All we are is a voting block, right, on uh, Fox News or MSN or CBS. All we are is a voting block. And it's not very accurate a description of us as who we are, what we believe, what we really practice. Sometimes we can even get distracted by the things that we're trying to do. We're trying to do a lot of things as a church. We're trying to build a building and prepare a budget and staff ministries and fill committees and run programs and organize growth groups and host prayer meetings and teach Sunday school classes and sign up for birthday luncheons. Sometimes you get distracted into thinking that that's the thing, that's the thing we're after, that we're after these Bible studies or after these prayer meetings or after these luncheons or after these committees and programs. But that, that's not the main point of what we're doing. It's easy to get distracted by them, though. So rather than being distracted, let's master the fundamentals. Here's what I want to do. I want to read this paragraph. Uh, And then I want to talk about how it's put together. It's it's a very dense sentence. And then we're going to trace John's argument that he makes in this sentence about the fundamentals through through a a couple of of steps that he makes. So follow along as I read. We'll start in 1 John 1, verse 1. He begins, That which was from the beginning, 
which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we have looked at and our hands have touched, this we proclaim concerning the word of life. The life appeared. We've seen it and testified to it, and we proclaim to you the eternal life, which was with the Father and has appeared to us. We proclaim to you what we have seen and heard, so that you also may have fellowship with us. And our fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. We write this to make our joy complete. Now, let's talk about the structure of this. This, what we have here in uh, 1 John 1, 1 through 4, is actually one long sentence. All of our translations divided into a number of sentences to make it easier to uh, read. Um, but uh, it's just one sentence. And the main verb in the sentence, that's always an important question when you come to the Bible, what's the main verb here? It's actually, it doesn't show up until verse 3, and it's the verb, we proclaim. Now, if you have a New International Translation like I do, uh, the translators put the we proclaim back up in verse 1 to, to clarify things. If you have an ESV, an English Standard Version, it, that we proclaim is not there at the end of verse 1. It just says, concerning the word of life. The other thing that the ESV does pretty well with this is it communicates to us with those dashes, if you have them in your Bible, is that uh, verse 2 is kind of a parenthesis. So um, it actually starts with this object, that which was from the beginning, gets to verse 3, we proclaim that thing, and then it tells us why. Actually, that's what this, this chapter is. The focus is on the proclamation that the apostles made about the Lord Jesus Christ. Specifically, this paragraph is about what they proclaimed, and then why they proclaimed it. Those are the headings that I want to use to walk through it here this morning, um, what the eyewitnesses proclaimed and why they proclaimed it. We'll start with the what. What did they proclaim? What did they announce? Uh, In short, the apostles, John is reminding them that from the beginning, what they have announced, they have proclaimed the eternal incarnate Son, Jesus Christ. That was the subject of their message, the eternal incarnate Son, Jesus Christ. And each of those five words are important. John's readers, remember, they were starting to listen to false teachers who were skeptical, if not in doubtright denial, about the identity of Jesus of Nazareth. They did not want to associate Jesus of Nazareth, that carpenter who was born in Bethlehem and uh, then did preaching and was crucified. They did not want to associate that person, Jesus of Nazareth, with the eternal son. So, uh, right from the very beginning of this book, John hammers that uh, belief and he says, no, Jesus of Nazareth, he is the eternal incarnate Son of God. Now, let's talk about those two concepts together. How does John put these together? First, we're going to talk about the fact that he's eternal. Then we're going to talk about the fact that he is incarnate. He's eternal. That's what this first line is about. That which was from the beginning. Now, what beginning is he talking about? Is he talking about the beginning of time? Or is he talking about the beginning of the ministry of the apostles? This is what we've said from the beginning. I think the word beginning here refers to the beginning of time. John clarifies that in verse 2. Don't be confused because he says, we proclaim to you the eternal life. He is talking in eternal terms. That which was from the beginning. He has to be referring, I think, to the gospel that we read just a minute ago, John 1, 1, 
in the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. And that John 1.1 1, 1 is a reference in itself to Genesis 1.1. 1, 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. John is telling a story that sketches back before time, before John, before the church, before the Bible, before the world itself came into existence. There is one who is from the beginning. And then he clarifies this even more in verse 1. He says, I am proclaiming to you the word of life. I'm going to talk about the word of life or the word that gives life. John, the author John, these two words he loved so much. He loved the word word and he loved the word life. In the Gospel of John, he uses the word word a lot. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. Jesus is the one, uh, John uses this phrase to say, Jesus is the one who is the revelation from God. He is the message and the messenger. He's the word. Now in 1 John, he's going to focus a little bit more on the life. He's the one who gives life. He's the one who gives eternal life. Jesus is the life bringer. If you want to have life, it is only found in him. So he's eternal. But he also appeared. That's in verse 2. This life appeared. Uh, He was revealed. That might be a better translation if you have revealed in verse 2. The life was revealed. The one who has been from all eternity has been revealed. The eternal one became the incarnate one. And actually, here's where John focuses more of his attention. He talks about Jesus being eternal, but here he's going to focus on the fact that he is uh, incarnate. As he talks about his appearance. And how does John substantiate that Jesus actually was appeared, has appeared, and that John saw him? Well, he talks about his personal experiences with him. Do you notice that? I have heard him, that which was from the beginning, eternal. I have heard him, I have seen him with my eyes. I have looked at him and I have touched him. His personal experience. And notice how these verbs, they get more intense as they progress, right? To see someone is a greater level of intimacy than hearing them. And to look at them, to behold them, is more than just seeing. And touching is even more than just uh, beholding. It's even more direct, I'm going to make a confession to you this morning. It's an embarrassing one. It's about to get real in here, so get ready. All right? Uh, When I was in elementary school, someone gave my father a cassette tape. It's the first time we had a car with a cassette player in it. So someone gave us a cassette tape uh, that was made from a record. If you don't know what that is, ask your grandma later. A record uh, that was turned into a tape of a live concert featuring the contemporary Christian artist Sandy Patty. Do you remember Sandy Patty? So Sandy Patty is a soaring soprano voice. In the late 1980s, she was on a lot of Disney television specials singing patriotic music. So here's my confession. I started listening to Sandy Patty, and I have never really stopped since that time. (laughs) All right? Now, I don't listen to her as much as I used to, but I I do still have a Sandy Patty playlist on uh, Google Play. So... Uh, Now, frankly, I attribute this to uh, psychological damage that was done to me by my parents. So 
about the same time that we got both that cassette and that car, we were planning a long trip to Washington, D.C. from Western New York, and someone said, dared my father, he made a bet with my father that we couldn't listen to one cassette the whole trip, and we did. Five days, down and back, this one t- So I'm damaged, so it's not my fault. Not my fault. Now, how do I know, how do I know that Sandy Patty is real? Well, I heard her in the 80s, first on a cassette. And then in time, I saw her in concert. I was sitting in an auditorium, and there she was, down there. And then, about 10 years ago, she came to the American Music Theater for a concert out uh, on Lincoln Highway. My wife was wise enough not to want to go, but she told me that I could. So... Um, I bought a ticket and I went. I was the youngest person there by about 35 years. If you were selling wheelchairs and walkers, that would have been a dynamite place to be. So there I was. And unfortunately, the week before the concert, I got this terrible cold. It's just a terrible cold. But I bought my tickets and I was going to go. So I ticket. It was just me. I went. And uh, I sat there in the aisle of, uh, of the auditorium trying not to hack and cough and sneeze and blow my nose too much. So to my horror, halfway through the concert, Sandy Patty decided it would be really nice if she came down from the stage and walked the aisle and shaking people's hands. All the old people, they loved it. And I sat there and she started getting closer and closer and closer to me. And I thought to myself, this poor woman is on a concert tour And if I shake her hand, I'm going to give her pneumonia. (laughs) So she's coming and getting closer and closer. And I think, oh, no, what am I going to do? If Sandy Patty reaches out her hand to to shake your hand, you can't say no. So finally, thankfully, thankfully, she stopped and turned around in the row right ahead of me. All the people around me were reaching out to touch Sandy Patty. And I was like this, okay, don't touch me, right? So how do I know she's real? I have heard her, I have seen her, and I was really close to touching her. Okay, trust me, she's real. She's real. John, how do I know that the eternal Son of God became incarnate? He's real because I have heard him, I have seen him, I have touched him. Some scholars think that the word touched here that he's using in, in John chapter, or 1 John 1, 1 is a reference to the resurrection. Because in Luke chapter 24, when Jesus, it's the exact same wording, when Jesus appears to the disciples after the resurrection, he says, look, same word, look at my hands and my feet, it is I myself, touch me, touch me and see, a ghost does not have flesh and bones as you see I have. Touch me, he says. He repeats these verbs in verse uh, 3, he repeats two of them, look, he says, we proclaim to you what we have seen and heard. Why this emphasis on these two verbs? Because these are the verbs that a witness would need to use in a court. Your credibility in court comes from what you have seen and what you have heard. John is saying to them, I am writing to you about the eternal Son of God who became incarnate and I am a witness to the incarnation. I have seen him, I have touched him, I have looked at him, I have been with the eternal one who was revealed That's what I told you about John is saying. I can testify and I can proclaim. Now there's two lessons or two key points that we should take from this. 
First, we should remember that Jesus Christ is the center and foundation of our faith. He's the center and foundation of our faith. The emphasis in this passage is not so much on the proclaimers or the act of proclamation. It's on the one that they proclaim. It's on Him. All we are, brothers and sisters, all we believe, all we aspire to, is bound up in who the Lord Jesus is. It's bound up in His identity, in His existence. It is central to us. If Jesus is not who the New Testament says He is, then our faith is a sham. I've heard D.A. Carson say this on a couple of different occasions. I may have said it to you before. But this is one of the things that distinguishes Christianity from other faiths. So Buddhism is a religion that is attributed, it's based on the teachings of the Buddha, a man whose name was, uh, we believe, Siddhartha Gautama, the Buddha. But if you ask a Buddhist, if you go up to the Buddhist and say, now you have the holy text of Buddhism, did they have to come from the Buddha or could they have come from someone else? And they will say to you that his identity, who he is, is not bound with the teaching himself, teachings themselves. Ask a Jew if the Torah could have come from another prophet other than Moses. Could God have given the Torah through a different prophet? And because God has spoken through different prophets at various times, we have their writings in the Old Testament, there's nothing in the, in the Torah that is central to who Moses is as himself. Be careful about doing this, but ask a Muslim if it is possible that Allah could have given the Quran through another prophet other than Muhammad. And, and without this will be difficult, without showing any uh, disrespect to Muhammad, they will then have to concede uh, that the Quran itself is not necessarily tied to Muhammad and his story. Ask a Mormon if the Book of Mormon has to come through Joseph Smith. And they will say, no, it is, it is distinct from him as a delivery person. But that is not the way it is with Christianity. Jesus and who he is is central to us. He's God's Son. He's the eternal incarnate Word. He is life itself. In fact, this is what you have to confess about Him or you're not in the sense uh, that the apostles taught a Christian. You may be an admirer of Jesus. You may try to live up to His teachings as, as best you understand them. But unless you name Him and identify Him as the eternal incarnate Son, you're not really His follower. And if he's not really the eternal incarnate son, then the teachings of Christianity just fall apart and there's nothing beneficial here. Now that's one key lesson. The second one is this. Our faith is tied to the teaching of eyewitnesses. Our faith is tied to the teaching of eyewitnesses. John here is defending his claim to speak authoritatively about Jesus because he has seen, heard, touched the Lord Jesus. When we pick up the New Testament, we are reading eyewitness accounts, people who were there. Not only that, but they were authorized and commissioned by the Lord Jesus to tell us about him. Now look at what Jesus says about being an eyewitness. I wrote this verse down for you on the note sheet. Matthew thirteen sixteen to 17, I think it's there. It says, But blessed are your eyes because they see, and your ears because they hear. For truly I tell you, many prophets and righteous people long to see what you see but did not see it, and to hear what you hear but did not hear it. Being an eyewitness is very important. Jesus says, You've seen and heard me. 
Or Acts 4.20, Peter and John were arrested by the religious leaders. They were commanded not to uh, preach in Jesus' name. And Peter and John say, As for us, we cannot help speaking about what we have seen and heard. It's interesting, it's the same John who wrote this. I'm telling you what I saw and what I heard. There's our eyewitnesses' accounts. Now, we talked about the role of eyewitness accounts a few months ago uh, when we started talking about our doctrinal statement. Do you remember that? We were going through the doctrinal statement and we, we were talking about the Bible and, and why do we give the Bible the authority that we do. It's God's word and it is the account of eyewitnesses. The Gospels, in fact, themselves bear all the uh, uh, marks of eyewitness accounts. They, they contain details that you could only know if you were an eyewitness. There's a British scholar, his name is Peter Williams. He has a book coming out, I hope, by the end of the year where he goes through many of these things. His family, uh, he is, um, his family members are not followers of Jesus and he wrote this book in order to help them understand why they should read and understand the Gospels because they're eyewitness accounts. I think it'll be a great resource. I'm looking forward to reading it. Uh, when I first met Herb Samworth, who is my predecessor here at uh, Grace... Um, I met him a number of years ago, and he was talking to me about the joys and quirks of living in Lancaster County. He's not native to Lancaster, and neither am I. I think I've told you this before, but one day Herb was telling me about this conversation he had. He met a man, and he said to him, are you from Lancaster? And the man said, no, I'm not from Lancaster. I'm from Neffsville. (laughs) Friends, you who are natives... Only natives think that there is a difference between Lancaster and Nestville. Uh, you have to be around here from around here to think that it really matters. And I know 90% of you in the room are thinking to yourself, but it does matter. And you're trying to figure out how you're going to convince me at the end of the service that Nestville and Lancaster are different places, all very different places. They're not. They're not. Okay? It doesn't matter. It doesn't matter. I'm not making fun of you, beloved. It's just, I'm making an observation. You're natives. I'm from western New York. I'm from a very small town called Perry. Outside of Perry, there is a little dot on the map called Perry Center. And if you ask anyone who lives in Perry, if there's a difference between being born in Perry versus being from Perry Center, there is a vast difference. But there's not. There's not. Only natives would think that. The Gospels have this sort of level of specificity that only natives would write the way they do. Only eyewitnesses would contain, would be able to describe the details the way they do in the Gospels. They're eyewitness accounts. When we read the New Testament, we're not reading speculative religious musings. We're not reading philosophical treatises. We're not reading intellectual dialogues. We are reading men who are writing about what they saw and they heard. That's important. Uh, see, the, the book of First John is meant to help people who are having doubts. It's meant to give assurance. And doubt comes in a lot of different flavors. Um, there are some people who doubt the Bible because they doubt the historicity of it. Can I believe the, the facts that it is, it is claiming to make, the objective facts that it's saying that Jesus Christ really is the eternal incarnate Son of God? Can, can I believe that objective fact? Is it true or not? There's, that's one form of doubt. 
There's another form of doubt that, that is, uh, um, if Jesus is the Savior, am I really trusting him in him? Am I really a Christian in that sense that these objective facts are really making a difference in my life, that I'm, I'm in some sense a participant in those objective facts? Those two different types of doubt. John's going to come to the second part, the second type of doubt, but before he even gets there, he wants to say, this is true. What I'm writing you is objectively true. In moments of doubt, start there with yourself. Do I believe what the Bible says about Jesus, that I believe it's objectively true? And the reason we believe they're objectively true, these are eyewitness accounts. Now that's the first question that this passage, um, uh, this paragraph prompts us to ask. What did these eyewitnesses proclaim? They proclaimed that Jesus is the eternal incarnate son. He was from the beginning, but he appeared so that John and others could see and hear and touch him. Now the second question is, why did they proclaim this message about Jesus? Why did they do that? And there's two reasons, one in verses 3 and one in verse 4. One's more immediate and one's more distant. Here's the immediate one, fellowship, fellowship. Look at verse 3. It says, We proclaim what we have seen and heard so that you also may have fellowship with us. Now the word fellowship is an important word in the New Testament. Sometimes we turn it into some sort of mystical union. But, but fellowship simply means shared partnership. A shared partnership. And here John is referring to the shared partnership that they have with the eyewitnesses. We enter into partnership with the eyewitnesses by accepting what they've heard and saw and experienced with the Lord Jesus. We receive the message and we become a part of their fellowship. What's even more, the text says in verse 3, is that this fellowship is with the Father and with His Son, Jesus Christ. John is talking here about fellowship with God himself. Now, just as a brief aside, some of you are quick enough thinkers to wonder about this. Where's the Holy Spirit in verse 3? Did you wonder that? Our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. Well, where's the Holy Spirit? probably he's not mentioned here is because he's the one who forms the bond of fellowship between us and God. He himself is that bond of fellowship between us and the Father and the Son. So John is writing about this fellowship that we have with one another and this fellowship that we have with the Father. John, could, you could have described this, you could describe this in some ways as fellowship restored. Fellowship with God restored in fact, that's one of the ways that you could describe the whole story of the Bible, I, I think. When God first called the world into existence back in Genesis, he made man and woman and he created this beautiful garden. And every day in the cool of the evening, he would come to the garden and he would walk with them and talk with them. Fellowship created. God made man and woman to have this fellowship with them in the garden. <laughs> but our first parents thought that that arrangement with God should be changed, that it needed to be updated a little bit, that it needed to be modified so that they had a little bit more independence from this God. So they took matters into their own hands. They broke the rules that God had given them. And so the Bible tells us about fellowship lost. Fellowship created in Genesis 2, fellowship lost in Genesis 3. And Adam and Eve were banished from the garden, from the place where they'd met with God. 
It's interesting, in the Old Testament it tells us about uh, a time when God did decide to move back in with his people. He had them build them a tent. We call it a tabernacle. And then they built them a stone house. We call that a temple where God lived. He took up residence with them. In a sense, there was fellowship there, but it was fellowship that was a bloody affair. It was bloody because of the spiritual condition of human beings. We're sinners and God is holy. He's in fact so holy that His holiness vaporizes any impurity in His presence. No one can see God's face and live. That's what God told Moses. So the, the blood was a form of protection for the people from the holiness of God. You've seen, I'm sure, news stories of, of doctors treating patients with terrible diseases like uh, Ebola. So if you have a patient with Ebola, before you go into the room to treat them, you, you put a special suit on and you wear gloves and you tape and you put on some sort of mask and maybe some sort of breathing filter. And then you go and treat them and then you, you come out of the room that you seal and then you, you uh, uh, rinse off with chemicals and then you take your suit off. It's to protect yourself from the disease. To protect the people from God's holiness, they covered themselves not with a hazmat suit, and, and not literally, but there was the covering of blood, the blood of bulls and goats to cover them. But when the Lord Jesus came, he presented uh, uh, his own blood on the cross, his own blood that provides permanent cleansing so that fellowship can be restored. Fellowship created, fellowship lost, fellowship restored through the Lord Jesus. Look at chapter, uh, verse 7 of chapter 1. We're going to come to this next week, but look what it says. Verse 7 says, If we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship, there it is again, that word, fellowship with one another and the blood of Jesus, his son, cleanses us, purifies us from all sin. Fellowship with God restored through Jesus. Do you believe that? That's, this is what uh, uh, makes you a Christian, relying upon this. That, that, that this is what, how we can have a restored relationship with God because of Jesus' sacrifice on the cross for us. Through Jesus, the Word who gives us life. And turning to Him, you find forgiveness, restoration, reconciliation with God. This is what those first eyewitnesses proclaimed. Um, and they proclaimed it so that you can have fellowship, partnership, Here's one of the fundamentals, brothers and sisters, all of the programs that we do, everything that we do, all of our Bible studies, our prayer meetings, our Sunday school classes, our worship services, our birthday luncheons, they are expressions of and cultivators of that fellowship, that shared partnership that we have with God and we have with one another because of the Lord Jesus. That's what everything is for, to cultivate that fellowship and to uh, express that fellowship, that shared partnership. Did you know that there are lonely people in our church? Uh, there's people who are members of our congregation and, and they come on Sunday and they just feel lonely. It's surprising. Now, I, people tell us when they visit, they say, "Why wow, this church is really friendly and some of you are really good at making uh, visitors feel welcome. Some of you are so much better at it than I am and I'm so thankful to you for it. 
thankful to God for the gifts that you have. And yet there's loneliness. Even in our fellowship, there's loneliness. Uh, Sometimes I hear people say out loud, they'll say, I don't know anyone around here anymore. I don't know people here. Everyone is new. I have no doubt that you feel that way sometimes, I'm sure. John Piper said that when he was a pastor uh, one Sunday, he went up to somebody he didn't recognize who was in the auditorium, and he shook out his hand and he said, Hi, I'm John. Are you new here? Now, it's nice. He's the pastor of the church. He introduced himself as John. Everybody knows who he is, right? Okay. Hi, I'm John. Are you new here? And the guy looked at him and he said, Well, actually, I've been a member for five years. Oh. How do you recover from that? Maybe he ought to... Start with a new question. Okay, new opening question might be a good idea. You may not know everyone. Uh, I doubt you do. The elders don't know everyone. But remember, remember, we all know Jesus. I, I know there's visitors and there's guests. There's visitors and guests here with us every Sunday. But, but we who are members of this church family, we know Jesus. And he's the foundation of our fellowship with one another. Last year, uh, we were invited to a birthday party for one of Kathy's co-workers. There's this woman that Kathy used to work with at the hospital. Her name was Catherine. And Catherine's husband, Daryl, invited us to a birthday party, uh, and we decided to go. Um, uh, can I confess, I don't like events like this. I don't really like events. We were all there because... We all knew Catherine, and Catherine's a wonderful person. She's gracious. She's easy to talk to. We really enjoy getting together with Catherine and, and her husband. Um, but we didn't know any of the other guests. There were friends of Catherine from uh, uh, jobs she's had in the past, and there were neighbors, and there were family members, and there were friends from her church. But I, we didn't know any of them. But it was still worth going because, because the party was for Catherine. It was for Catherine's joy, and we liked Catherine. Brothers and sisters, we all know Jesus. Here are all his people. And they're worth getting to know for his sake. We can sit next to one another in worship. We can introduce ourselves. Even if we make some embarrassing mistake, are you new here? You can, you can recover from that. We can pray. We can sing with one another. We can welcome each other. We, we are in company. We are in the company of people in league with one another because of our common confession of Jesus. This fellowship manifests itself in love. This is a topic that John's going to come back to over and over and over again. And this sort of fellowship takes a, uh, requires a bit of self-forgetfulness, a level of self-forgetfulness to overcome your discomfort with people you don't know. You have a great reason for this level of self-forgetfulness. His name is Jesus. We are in league with each other because we are in league with him. So John and the other eyewitnesses proclaimed what they saw and heard about the Lord Jesus for the building of fellowship. Secondly, verse 4 tells us they did it for the sake of joy. They did it for the sake of joy. Verse 4, very simply, we write this to make our joy complete. Uh, Very simple sentence, right? I'm doing this. This book that I am writing here right now, I am making for joy that is complete. Now the question is, um, is the word our, is John referring to just himself or is he referring to his readers too? Is John writing to say, man, this writing this book is really making me happy. I'm not sure about you, but I love it. 
probably probably it's referring to both John and his readers. John's a, a pastor and he, he wants to spread the joy. John's going to find joy in their joy. This book, brothers and sisters, good news for the next several months, we're going to be reading this book that is a manual for you to develop joy. That's why it's here. It's what fellowship with Jesus and with others, uh, with the Father and with his followers is supposed to produce. It's supposed to produce joy. What's striking about this sentence is uh, that Jesus himself fully expected us to experience joy. I think John is borrowing from what he has already written about the, uh, the Lord Jesus. Jesus, right before he was crucified, he spoke about joy a lot. In fact, I wrote several verses down uh, where Jesus talks about joy there from John 15 and 16 and 17. Look at John 15, 9 to 12. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Now remain in my love. If you keep my commands, you will remain in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commands and remain in his love. I have told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. Same wording as verse 4. My command is this, love each other as I have loved you. I'm telling you this, Jesus says, so that your joy will be complete, full. John 16, 24, until now you have not asked anything in my name. Ask and you will receive and your joy will be complete. John 17, 13, Jesus is praying. So he's speaking to the Father. The you is the Father. I am coming to you now, in anticipation of his ascension. I'm coming to you now. But I say these things while I'm still in the world so that they, the disciples who are listening to me, may have the full measure of my joy within them. Complete joy. It's strange that this is what Jesus expected for us, that this would be our experience. Joy. It's the goal. That's why we're going to read this book. So we're going to study it so carefully because it is, oh, John wrote it for that reason, but it is Jesus' intention that knowing him and following him and loving him would produce joy in our lives. We're not used to talking that way sometimes. Sometimes we get very discouraged about how hard this life is. And it is hard. I don't want to deny that for a moment. But, you know, in John 15, Jesus did not say, I have told this to you so that you could just kind of make it. So that you'd be able to slog through. So that you'd be able to get up one Monday morning more. Right? I have told you this. And he, he expects this. He's fully acquainted with our suffering. And he says, I've told you this so that my joy may be in you and that your joy may be complete. That's astounding. This is normal of what he expected for us who are followers of Jesus. We better figure that out, right? Read the rest of this book. What, what does that mean? What does that look like? How do we figure this out if this is Jesus' expectation and John's reason for writing this? John Stott said um, that this complete or full joy that Jesus, uh, John is writing about here, is he doesn't think it's really possible in this life because we still live in a broken world, a, a world that's broken still by sin. But he says John is pointing us forward to that great day, that great day that will come. And if that's true, then in these four verses at the beginning of 1 John, John reaches all the way back to eternity past, and he pushes us all the way forward towards eternity to come in the future. Uh, there is 
an eternal Son of God who has appeared to us. And because He has appeared, He has revealed Himself, and He's revealed the Father, and He has paid the penalty for our sins. And because of Him, there is joy to be had that will be eternal. It will last eternal, eternally. Right now, we have the foretaste of it. But it's joy that is to come. It will be joy that is complete. Get that. Get that as we read this book because those are the fundamentals for all of us to master. Let's pray, shall we? Father, we come before you this morning and it is our intention to learn much of the Lord Jesus and think much of his beauty and his wonder, his majesty and his glory. Lord, we recognize that in him is where our hope is found. He is the word of life, the one who has been from all eternity and was revealed in the days of John and Peter and James. And and they wrote down what they saw so that we could be in awe of this great Savior. Lord, we are challenged by this text because... Uh, It calls us out of our comfort zones, not just to acknowledge the truth, the eternality and incarnation of the Lord Jesus, but to uh, fellowship with one another and to pursue joy. Lord, I do ask that you would, according to your kindness, make verse 4 here this complete joy, a lifter of our burdens and not just one more thing to do or to think about or to feel guilty about not having but remind us by your spirit of this call that the Lord Jesus has issued. He came so that our joy might be full. Cultivate that in us, we pray, in the name of our great Savior, whose praise we will sing forevermore. Amen.